Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that looks at the films of action icon Dolph Lundgren. Today we're traveling back to 2004 and taking a look at the action science fiction thriller Retrograde. In this time-traveling flick, Lundgren plays Captain John Foster, a genetically engineered soldier from 200 years in the future who travels to present-day Antarctica to prevent the onset of a deadly virus. What was that? Trouble. We've got to go, sir. I'll grab your hand. Go! I want the vaccines and the release codes. Dangerous? Could be. Go! He who controls the past determines the future. Dolph Lundgren. You don't have a future. Retrograde. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to chat this one today is Catherine Gonzalez, editor and chief of Shuffle the Podcast. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited about this one. Well, and and before we <laughs> before we really dive into this film, I have to say I have been super excited to talk with you about this film for a couple of reasons. Number one, finally on the show in the in the two years that I've been doing the show, uh, I, I get a female voice for once to, <laughs> to to join me for a conversation, which which I've been looking forward to, and also. This is a film that not many people really seem to know about. It's kind of on the lower end, if you will, of uh, of Lundgren's CV of his all of the films that he's done. And so to have a uh, to have you know your voice expressed in, express interest in not only participating in this show but this film in general. That's kind of why I um, expedited the conversation and wanted to uh, get this uh, rolling as soon as possible. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know you told me to choose one, and I love a good time travel movie, and this one seemed interesting. So I was like, let's go for it. Well, and before we before we start talking about the film, I do I would like to talk a little bit about your show. So Shuffle the Podcast, if you could, please. I've listened to a, a couple of the episodes. It seems like a lot of fun. How did that start, and kind of what's been your... Uh... I don't know. What's been your focus? How would you describe it to people? Yeah. So um, it started because it's a spinoff of um, I run shuffleonline.net and that's an entertainment and lifestyle uh, online magazine. So we write about film reviews, uh, live music, and we're based in Austin, Texas. So um, there's a lot of music shows um, and TV and just all of that. And I realized, you know, writing and people reading, it only can only go so far. And I felt like I really wanted to talk about some of these things more in depth and, and um, you know, what you can't get from just reading or what I couldn't get from, you know, writing a review or anything. So that's how I kind of started and spun off. And um, it's still evolving and still trying to figure it out. But basically, it's just a shuffle of all the things I love. So movies, TV, pop culture, everything. Um, yeah, and I hope it's I hope you enjoyed uh, the few that you 
or the one that you um, heard because it's still um, still pretty new. So, well, now we can say that you can officially add a uh, a conversation, a discussion of uh, the cinematic career of uh, Mr. Dolph Lundgren to <laughs> to to your mix as well for that show. Yeah, I uh, I tweeted it out and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to be on a Dolph Lundgren podcast. So I'm really excited. Super excited. Well, and okay, so before we start taking a look at the film, I'm curious. I know that you said when you and I first got to talking, I know that you said that uh, you're a huge fan of Mr. Lundgren. So before we look at Retrograde, I'm curious, your experience with Mr. Lundgren and his films over the years, what uh, what would you like to say? Yeah, so my experience has been, because um, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I was like, oh, I need to have a good answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I went through his filmography, and I obviously have seen Rocky um, and and then the one that sticks out in my mind that I saw a lot growing up with my brothers was uh, Universal Soldier with Van Damme. Yeah. And then also um, forgetting the other few. But then I realized while I was going through that filmography that it's more and I guess this, you can speak to this because you obviously have a podcast on him. Um, it's more of the pop culture Dolph Lundgren that I was more aware of, I felt like. Or I realized while, you know, doing research for this and the fact that he feels like he's always been there <laughs> and um, as like, you know, in the action kind of thing. And I hadn't really seen any of like the B movies, more of the, you know, the popular ones that went to cinema. And so I found that really interesting that I feel like I know him more than I actually like have seen his films. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And that's one of the, you know, and I've, I've said it before on, on numerous episodes and I'll echo it again. But that's one of the things that I have just such an immense appreciation and respect for is because, yeah, he has been in the business since, well, let's look at it, 1985. And he is still putting out work. You know, I mean, he's still going at it and he's been able to evolve his image over the years, which I think is what has, um, what has made him still relevant in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, there's tons of uh, actors, not just from the, the action genre, but actors in cinema um, in general who kind of, you know, had their peak, if you will, but then slowly kind of fade away. But the fact that he is still going at it and, you know, a lot of these films, like the one that we're talking about today were plagued with, you know, some kind of production problems, or maybe they were really low budget. So a lot of them kind of just flew under the radar, but the fact that he's still going at it, you know, I mean, not not every movie that an actor is going to do is going to be a home run is going to be, you know, <laughs> is is, is going to be breaking the box office. But, um, yeah, the, the fact that he is a hardworking individual who just keeps going at it, I think, is uh, is is a real testament to his his work ethic. Yeah. And I think that's what I learned because I thought I knew Dolph Lundgren, you know, when I <laughs> signed up for this and I was like, yeah because I love action movies and that's why, you know, you invited me on and, um, and, and I was like, yeah, I know. And then I was like, oh, I don't know. And now I feel like pretty dumb, <laughs> but it, it's nice kind of exploring this. And then you realize, yeah, he just, he, it's also nice seeing the, like he's an Aquaman and that kind of, he had to do all these in between movies, um, like retrograde <laughs> and then, but it paid off, you know, you got to keep trudging. And so, um, and now he's, you know, cause I think there's a lot of nostalgia for people who we grew up with and that also kind of plays to them. Now they had to kind of sit through the 10, you know, the 10 or I don't know how many years. And now we like long for them again. And it's so nice because we're grown up. Um, so yeah, it's just really interesting. So I was really excited to watch when I 
got more into it and I realized I thought I knew him and I didn't. And then I was, I just had more of appreciation as well. Like you mentioned all those things. Well, and I know that when we first started talking, um, you pretty much asked, okay, well, where are you at in this filmography? So I kind of know which film to, to pick out. And I gave you the year that I was currently at at the time. And I remember distinctly, you sent me the email and you said, let's do retrograde. And your response was time travel, Joe Montana, I'm in. So I'm curious, uh, why did you pick this particular film out of all the others that he did around this period? I think I love time travel films, anything related to that, anything that's has a, I guess, a science fiction element. Um, and I thought it would be interesting knowing that it was a B, like kind of a B movie, um, to see what they would do with it. And especially it was set in the Antarctic or Antarctica. And I was like, Oh, that seems like a little bit more ambitious. Um, so I was just curious to kind of watch the film and see how, how they did and what the story was. So I was like, yes. And then of course, Joe Montana. And I was like, okay, like, <laughs> this is so random. But it was good. Well, and, um, you know, and I should probably let the listeners and, and you know as well, I kind of directed you to this one. But I was fortunate about a little over a year ago, or just under a year, actually, and I think about it. I did speak with the writer and director of this film, Christopher Kulikowski. Um, and so that episode is in the uh, archives. And, you know, Chris gave me just tons of just backstory into this film. And I will say, after speaking with him, and then watching the film again through that lens of what he was telling me, I'll tell you what, I I mean, because this is a low-budget B-movie, we can say that right now, but I will say, when you watch it under the lens of, you know, like I said, after speaking with uh, Mr. Kulikowski, you realize kind of what he was working with. And he was, it seemed, it sounds like everybody working on this film was pretty much kind of doing an uphill battle in a lot of ways. You know, I, I will say, I don't think any director, anybody, an actor, director, producer, I don't think anyone sets out to make a bad movie. I don't think that's ever, you know, on their, uh, on their radar. In the end, you know, making a film takes a ton of resources, time, money, and effort to put together an entire film. And with regard to Retrograde, this was Chris Kulikowski's, this was his second movie that he did. And so when you watch it and you see it, yeah, there's a little, you know, some of the special effects are pretty chintzy, which we'll be um, talking about. But I will say, I, I think it, I, like I said, I appreciate it. And I think it looks fairly decent considering everything that was going on at the time during the filming. Yeah. And I also tried to look at it from a 2004 perspective as well. And I tried to compare it to, um, I recently just saw, um, event horizon cause it was on Amazon prime. And, um, that was in 1997, I think, or 98. And those are pretty good special effects. Um, and these weren't too far off of that. And, I mean, given it is a big difference in saying that a 97 movie has better special effects than or visual effects than 2004 is not much. But when you factor in the low budget as well, yeah, I would agree with you um, that it wasn't too bad. And I'm always fair with um, with that kind of stuff because I've worked on um, like I've been an intern on a few film sets and um, I, I just recently was on a short film and the amount of work that it takes just for shooting something even simple without visual effects is really hard. And so I think people don't understand that 
when we see movies and, and things that require a lot of visual effects and special effects and things and, and they're really harsh on it. It's like, it's really hard to do that. And I think we've lost sight of that in terms of, you know, when people critique films. So listening to you, um, mention that the director was like, you know, what he was working with, I can, you know, I appreciate the effort, um, as well. Cause I'm, I come at it from that angle. I'm not just like, this was sucky, you know, it's yeah. like, you have to understand everything that was going on. And so I'm, I'm, I make sure to, um, you know, keep that in, keep that in mind when I watch these films as well. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, look, and, and I'm not gonna, um, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite or anything like that, because I think, you know, laughing about a bad film is fun to do. I mean, if you listen to some of the previous episodes, Agent Red, I mean, that one was I mean, you can't help but watch that one and not just, you know, <laughs> pick it apart and laugh at it. And the last one, actually, that um, that I did that was recorded before this one was Detention. And that was the same thing where there are so many moments in that movie where it's like, oh, come on. This one, I will say right now. This one, I didn't really find a whole lot really to laugh at. I mean, for that matter, because I think I think the story had this had this movie. I'll say it right now. Had this movie had more of a budget going with it and they had more shooting days and just more resources at it. I think the story and everything behind this has legs and this could really work. Unfortunately, we're going to be we're, I mean, we're going to be com coming back to this point numerous times throughout the discussion but yeah when a project does not have the the appropriate budget especially if it's a sci-fi movie i think that's one of the things that hurts it as yeah. well then it's going to you know affect the the end result but i'll just say it right now i kind of went into this uh you know about a year or two ago when i first saw it and i knew that i was going to be coming to this one i was like oh that's going to be one of the ones that i put in the bad pile and we're going to be laughing about it but like I said, after speaking with Chris Kulikowski and then watching it again, there, there's not much to laugh at about this one. It's it's almost kind of missed opportunity in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I agree. I was actually um, when I was writing notes, like watching the film, I I, I was I I think that that thought crossed my mind as well. Like this is actually a really good story that I wish they would have had resources to really fully flesh out because then it would have been really cool because. Um, had they, you know, it would have been better. Um, cause I don't know when we're going to get into it, but the wardrobe, I need to talk about that. It's oh yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and nothing suitable for the Antarctic yeah. <laughs> or like I would, or what people would wear, I think in future times. Yeah. But like you mentioned, I think you, I can, I can already see it. Like if they had had like at least 50 million or like a hundred million, it could have been really cool. Because I like the story, and I think that's also um, you asked me what drew me in. I like the story, like a virus um, that he's trying to go back in time to to fight. Like that sold that sold me. So, um, yeah. but the execution of it, of course, you know, it lacks a little just because it didn't have the resources. The production design was not the great greatest. That one, I think, if I laughed at anything, I think that was that was the stuff. But I also knew like. Well, they probably, you know, this is what the best they could do. So it is what it is. Um, because just because it's fresh in my memory, but Event Horizon, that was like a Paul, Paul Anderson film, that production design was amazing, but that's on a bigger budget, you know, and that also had its failings, um, in terms of like story and the editing and all that. And so I really wish I could have seen what this movie would have been like with the bigger budget as well. 
I guess well, is what I'm getting at, like you mentioned. Well, you know, there, there's a couple things that we do need to establish before we uh, break down the plot and everything like that. Uh, the first thing is that this was shot in just 18 days. Um, nowadays, with direct-to-video uh, cinema, especially you know the direct-to-video action films, that's pretty much the standard. In fact, one of one of Lundgren's more recent films that he did uh, within the past year, actually, I think he was on set on that one for maybe twelve to fourteen days. But the poster art and the marketing and everything like that is making it look like he's one of the leads. You know, so what they did is they filmed his scenes, and then kind of padded it out throughout the film, obviously. But back in 2003, 2004, even the direct-to-video productions got a little bit more time to shoot. So 18 days, they're having to work really, really quick. Yeah, that's that's crazy, because I think nowadays that's pretty standard for independent film and everything else that's not a big budget. And even big budget films have cut down so much. They don't do, it used to be, what, like nine months or a year or something. And on I guess the bigger Marvel films, maybe that's true. But even then, it's like four months or three months or something. I don't know exactly. Um, it varies from every production. But to know that this is a 2004 film where usually, like you mentioned, they have more time, that also makes you look at the film through a different lens as well, I think. Which, well, yeah, we can... Before we go into it, because I did write notes of things I did not like or that was just <laughs> cringy or... You know, the, yeah. with all that being said of me being appreciative of the effort and everything, yes, we have to go into it. So just for people listening. <laughs> well, and the, and the last thing that I will establish that, that's also important to note is one of the production companies, this is actually one of the big things that uh, caused the film to look the way it does, I think, in a lot of ways. But one of the production companies and financiers behind this was Franchise Pictures. And what happened is Franchise Pictures, they were going under just as the film was going in production. So as a result, the budget was slashed and everything. But I don't know if you remember the days of Franchise Pictures, but Franchise Pictures, they were a big studio who put out a lot of big budget flops in the uh, early 2000s. Do you remember the film Battlefield Earth with John Travolta? Oh, yes. Okay, so that was one of the films that pretty much bankrupted the studio. But if you look at their list of films, that these are all films that went to theaters. Some of them, not all of them, excuse me, but some of them are actually kind of cool. Um, but there was Battlefield Earth. There was uh, X versus Sever with Antonio Banderas and Lucy Lucy Liu. 3,000 Miles to Graceland with uh, Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner. Love that movie. Uh, then there was The Art of War with uh, Wesley Snipes and Get Carter with Sylvester Stallone. So... You have, a, you have a studio here that has some money behind it, but here's where things for me got really, really eerie and really similar is this is what happened with this production is really similar to what happened with 1987's Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe was financed and distributed by Canon. Same thing was going on with Canon. Canon was going under, and as a result, uh, the production of Masters of the Universe is having to cut corners where they can, and then you get the film that we got. So it's just, it's really ironic, and like I said, really eerie in a lot of ways, that the two science fiction films that Dolph Lundgren did <laughs> were plagued by these production problems while the movie is being filmed. I mean, I thought that was just so wild to look at. It's like justice for Dolph Lundgren's science fiction film. <laughs> yeah. Someone needs to give him another part. Yeah, so um, <laughs> anyway. So with that being said, um, yeah, we've talked about it. This is a low-budget film, very, very evident. Uh, just doesn't have the resources to pull off what it sets out to do. It tries in some respects, and I think it does succeed in some parts, but 
you know, I, m- I mentioned this already. I'm just curious. Don't you think that doing a science fiction film on a low budget is not only difficult, but almost doomed in some respects? Yeah, maybe that's why I wanted to watch this as well, because I, <laughs> I mean, not to see it fail, but... I was really intrigued to see what they thought they could do on a low budget, if that makes sense. Like, um, cause it's pretty ambitious, like you mentioned. And then also it wasn't just traveling back in time to, you know, um, like in a city or something. They want, they traveled back in time to Antarctica. So it's also adding that element in, like with a big boat and their, you know, like the snow and everything. So I thought that was pretty ambitious and that's, and I give kudos to them to try, you know, for them trying, because um, usually they don't go back in time to the Antarctic, you know, like Antarctica or whatever. I don't know if it's Antarctic or Antarctica, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting that they, I guess they would just win balls to the wall. and was like, let's just do it. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, um, you probably know because you spoke with the director, but yeah, but I guess he's, he kind of set it himself up to, or they set themselves up to fail just a little bit because, you know, you can't. It's going to be hard to pull off a science fiction film on a low budget unless you're really... It's tricky. I think yeah. it's tricky. Because some people have pulled it off on a low budget, but it just depends on what you're trying to do. Uh, like like Primer. Primer pulled that off because it was like in one... But that was like very... Uh, like one location and they were able to do it because there's no other outside elements and things like that. Um, but when you added like elements to your film, like I meant with the snow and all that, I think that's... I don't know. That's that's way harder to do. That's really interesting choice that they chose to do that. I guess that was like they wanted it to be different, maybe <laughs> like yeah. they would stand out, and which it did because I that was one of the selling points for me and wa- wanting to watch it. You know, you bring up a good point because I'm wondering, yeah, if maybe this did take place in a in one set or one location because you know you're right. A lot of low budget productions will be set in one solitary confined area i mean i'm thinking you know the, the the film that's coming to my mind is cube i don't know if you saw the the, the horror yeah. science fiction yeah. film cube i mean here that yeah, one was that done one. on a very modest budget but that one the more i think about it really works and is pretty horrific because it is so confined so i don't know but i i do i'm going to go back to this multiple times i do appreciate and respect the ambition behind this because like you said Adding the, and, I, and this is one of the things that I mentioned to uh, Kulikowski when I spoke to him, was I think adding just the whole Arctic element to a time travel story, I think that in itself is is pretty original and unique. Yeah. You know, there's so many B-movies that you have to kind of, you have to stand out. And this was really fun. I mean, given all the stuff that we're going to go into, the, but overall, it's fun. Well, as the movie starts off in voiceover, uh, we get some exposition. And we find out, uh, what, the world is overrun by this nasty, nasty virus and plague. And Lundgren, uh, he plays Captain John Foster. He is a member of an elite team of genetically engineered soldiers who have exceptional immunity. I have a slight issue with this little subplot here, but we'll talk about that later. And so, yeah, he's sent back to the past to the location of this arctic expedition vessel which is deemed to be the origin of the virus because i guess and they they go through this so quick in the beginning that that is a little bit problematic but that was actually not the director's decision um but apparently the ship as we find out what it comes into contact with some meteors which is what created the virus and so foster's job is to detonate the ship 
and ensure that no one from that ship makes it out alive, right? That's pretty much the overall conflict and, and crux of the of the film, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I agree with you on the on the rushing of it because I started this film um, and I fell asleep halfway through, not because of the film, just because I'm an oldie and if I stay up past like 10, I fall asleep. Um, so then I had to start it again and even started like watching it again, that voiceover it brushes it too much. And then he's on the ship going, um, you know, going back in time. And then they're doing like this weird flashback fade. And it's just a little jarring because it's like him, like they look at him, they have him like a camera facing right directly. Like he's like brooding or whatever on his way back. And, and then it's doing this flashback with the voiceover and trying to explain all this stuff. And I'm just like, okay, like, I don't, it was a little quick for like, I wish I, we would have had more explanation on, on that. But I guess if, if you're saying that there was a reason to that, maybe just the, they had to get it done because they didn't have enough time to film um, or do more with that introduction. That makes sense that they just had to tell us everything really quickly. And then we just had to figure it out, I guess. Well, and I will say there actually is a director's cut of the film that I was, um, fortunate in, in speaking with the director he did uh he did send that my way and so i did watch that this morning and he cleans that up quite a bit so the first the opening 10 minutes are much different than the cut that you and i both watched because i'm assuming did you watch this on prime or on 2b tv one of those streaming apps yes i watched it on prime okay yeah and so yeah the director's cut is actually different and does like i said clean that up quite a bit, which, which was pretty nice, but, um, you know, you already mentioned it, so we'll talk about it right now. Cause this is one of the, the big things about the film that I think some people love and some people may laugh at, but the wardrobe and the costumes. So, um, yeah, so these, so John Foster and his soldiers, they're all wearing motorcycle attire. So this is one of the things that came from the director actually, when I guess when production saw kind of what they were working with in terms of uh, the budget, he said, you know, what looks really, really cool. He was a motorcycle enthusiast. And so he said, you know, it looks really, really cool is um, there's some really slick looking motorcycle gear that's out there. What if we get some of this and kind of retrofit this so that this can be the, the futuristic look that these soldiers wear. And so what we are seeing is, in fact, um, motorcycle attire. And if you look closely, you can actually see the motorcycle logo is uh, visible on some of the outfits. So... <laughs> I, um, when I realized that they were motor, cause I was like, is that motorcycle? Like, did they even try to, you know, outfit them a little bit? And then you just got it. I mean, if you think like, if I'm thinking about it, it's actually a pretty cool way to sidestep the, Hey, we don't have a cool budget to make custom, uh, like spacesuits or, or future spacesuits. So, I mean, that was a pretty good shortcut in, 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 um, as a way to, you know, sidestep that. So I kind of, it, it's funny because I had to laugh at it just because it is funny, but also I think it works in some weird way as well when you get past the fact that it's just motorcycle and if you kind of, you know, suspension of disbelief kind of thing, but <laughs> it is, well, it is really funny. I think, I think my main thing though with them is that some are ill-fitting on some people. Like I feel like they needed to be a little bit, um, you know tailored and it would have probably pulled it off a little bit better but it just looked like they got like a one size kind of fits all and or close to whatever the people were and that's what i think i think that's where they could have honed, honed it in a little bit i don't know how you feel about it but that was no, my um, thoughts on it 
I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because, okay, so if you look at Lundgren's, I mean, his is extremely snug and pretty good fitting. You know, I mean, his, I mean, he has the body to where he can, you know, it, it looks good. But then the, the the lead antagonist, the main bad guy, Dalton, the, the bald dude or whatever, his is almost, yeah. his almost looks like a ski jacket in some kind of ways. I mean, it's, and it, the other thing too that I had to laugh at is, you know, it's funny how the good guys are in the red and black suits. And then the bad guys are all in the black and gray suits. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, which. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that. Which is just kind of funny because at the beginning, they're all on the same side. It's when they start going back in time where the guys in the black and gray suits decide to turn on Foster and the ones in the red suits. So they really telegraphed that in a way. It's I almost kind of wonder if, you know, in the story, if they were like, okay, we're going to be bad now. So let's change our gear i mean i don't know how that really worked but i thought that was a kind of a kind of a funny touch there yeah which is funny because i read it i guess i read it in a way where i thought they were two different sets of people going on on the ship because of that and so i guess that's where i i just automatically assumed they were a different like they were like a head like they were the ones that were uh just like a, you know within the unit something different but it's funny that you mentioned that because then, yeah, it was just like so obvious, like, oh, they're going to they're be the bad guys. <laughs> um, but I was already thinking, like, what what unit are these guys? And then why did they turn on them and like all this stuff? So it makes sense. I will say I really do like Lundgren's look in this film. I mean, I you know, if, if you look at his his career and the trajectory of his filmography, the types of films that he was doing over the years, it was around this time in his career, I think, where he was starting to kind of revamp his career and find different, more interesting projects. And so, like I said, if, if you look at his look, I think this is very evident in in just his overall appearance. I mean, because he's always been in phenomenal shape, but in this film in particular, he suddenly has like this uh, long blonde hair that's uh, pretty reminiscent of his role as He-Man, but he's in he's in that fantastic shape. And he's he, he's very lean and his face is so much more defined here than it was um, in some of his previous films. And so I can't help but wonder if when, if this was one of the projects that we, when he saw it on paper, it was a cool, original, unique idea. And he kind of looked at this as saying, okay, look, I'm resetting, I'm revamping, I'm going to be changing up my career. And I'm also going to kind of alter my look a bit. And maybe I'm looking too much into that, but I couldn't help but wonder if that was a conscious decision on his part. No, you're right, because when I was watching this film, you know, especially the shots uh, that they they really emphasize, because he doesn't really speak in the film for until a little bit, and I would say unless um, he doesn't really have that many lines throughout the film, because um, when I was watching it again, like the first thirty minutes, I was like, when does he talk, you know? And so and so it's a lot of uh, camera, like just the cameras on him, like really um, with his face. So I wonder if that was also. They noticed either he got in shape for this film, like, you know, even more so that he was. And they really wanted to emphasize that because I noticed it. Um, I was like, oh, like, you're very good looking, you know, like, even though, like, I know that already. But in this film, it was like, oh, even though, like, 2004, he's older than he was in Rocky. But I was just like, man, why didn't we, why didn't we see you in, like, a lead action film? Like, you know, I was thinking that. So it's cool that you brought that up because just subconsciously I was like man I wish he would have been like they would have given him a big blockbuster movie because I did notice 
the change in his body as well and like the like his face structure because of the shots they were showing us and it just made me long for like a film where you know he was the leading man and like that kind of thing because he did really carry himself in this film in that way which maybe was him trying to revamp his style or you know his image now what did you think of the special effects because we do, we do need to kind of address that real quick i i will say personally i don't think they're terrible um, you know, the spaceship that Lundgren mans at the beginning looks cool. Um, despite it, I mean, let's, let's be perfectly honest. It does look like a video game, but I think it looks pretty cool. Yeah. I think the visual effect, cause you see it right away. So you're like, oh, okay, this is the type of film it's going to be. <laughs> um, I think there's some shots that are really good. Um, like where they, I guess maybe that was finished before they had all this trouble with the budgets or I don't know what. Um, but yeah, it wasn't too bad. I think the outside uh, like space shots are okay. Um, I can go with that. Um, it's nothing spectacular. Like I mentioned, I watched that movie that was from 97 way better. But I mean, given, you know, what it is, what type of movie it is, I thought it was pretty decent. And there was some shots that I enjoyed as well. Like it wasn't, I think you can tell like where they had to skimp on and then where they like put more effort in, which I find that's just a funny thing too. But overall, it was cool. Like at the very end too, there's a shot where they're wrapping around, where he's wrapping around the earth. And I thought that was, it looked pretty cool. Yeah. So it worked for me. It wasn't too bad. Obviously I am a big visual effects person, but I can also, it, it's okay. It wasn't, it wasn't horrible. It's excusable. Yes. Well, and so looking at, uh, at, at the story. So, okay. So Lundgren is getting ready to go back in time. Actually, he's already boarding and they're getting ready to travel back in time. And he's ambushed by members of his own team. So we kind of talked about this already, but he's ambushed by members of his own team. Uh, interestingly, one of which is played by James Chalk, who's actually a, uh, a close friend of uh, Lundgren's. Dolphin and James Chalk go way, way back. They practice Kyukushin karate together um, over the years. And so that's, again, not to, not to plug the show, but if you go back through the episode archives, that's another individual... Um, who has, has been on the podcast. But yeah, um, he plays one of the bad guys. But here's what I don't understand, and maybe you can help me make sense of this a bit, Catherine. So the leader of these guys is Dalton. Uh, Dalton is the bald guy, uh, played by Joe Montana, not the 49ers quarterback. That threw me for a loop as well. But the actor's name is Joe Montana. It's never really clarified why... Foster's own crew is ambushing him. I mean, it's pretty much, we're told that they're bad. They want control of the ship because, quote unquote, this is what Dalton says, he who controls the past determines the future. But what are they going to do with the ship? Why is it they, they want it? They just they don't really lean into this as much as I was hoping. Yeah, I think I was having trouble figuring that out as well. It didn't make sense. And then maybe... That was a plot line that wasn't able to be fully fleshed out as well. I don't know if in the extended version they go any deeper than what what you know what is on the version I saw or we saw um, as well. But it wasn't clear. I felt like it was just kind of a ploy. Like there needs to be bad guys in this to have another element to stop him. So let's just make up this plot line or not make it up, but let's write this in so there can be some adversity. But to me, it was never really clear why they also like why they turned on him it didn't really make sense because couldn't they just like get the ship like unless they have some security measures wherever they're from and they couldn't get a ship you know they couldn't get a ship and just like leave and 
get the pat, you know, do something or did they want that or did they want the virus to, um, you know, I guess because they're immune, they have better immunity. Did they want to, you know, kind of steer it in a certain direction and maybe go back in a certain time and have that virus break somewhere else? I don't know. Or in another um, time. But yeah, honestly, it just felt like there had to be a bad guy, which I think is funny because if you think about it, the fact that he has to go back in time to stop this virus. And if they would have focused more on that, that would have probably been more interesting than adding this cliche bad people turning on him kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know if you, if you, how you feel, but because that was, to me, that was more compelling. Like the virus itself is already enough for me to be like, well, that's the bad, that's the bad thing you're fighting. So adding this this other thing in about the crew turning on them just felt cliche and very B-movie-like, which was uh, not a strong point for me. Yeah, you're right. I almost kind of wonder if what if, I mean, the more and more you talk about this, yeah, because the the guy who's in charge of the Arctic expedition is, I mean, he's just a total ass, you know. Uh, all together and so i almost kind of wonder if yeah you're right if maybe if dolph goes back into the past and if there needs to be a bad guy maybe he's just battling people in the present to stop the virus you know what i mean like like you said i think that would have been more compelling and also the elements like they're already battling that like, he has to battle those elements so and it, <laughs> i i had wrote down these notes but it's so funny because i don't know what was going on as well? Like, I wish they would have cleaned up the whole science. I guess it's a science. Is it like a scientific expedition or they're just trying, he's trying to find something. The guy who um, chartered the boat is trying to find something that's going to be valuable. And the fight between the captain and him just felt really weird. And it was very not, I mean, no offense, but not acted very well. So yeah. it was very <laughs> choppy and the lines were not delivered well. Like the captain says, when after they fight, like that man needs to get laid, which is so cliche, you know, like why, what, why do you have to bring that in? You know, like I'm, yeah. I'm just like, I was, I was not for that, that, um, relationship because then in the end, and I won't get into it because we want to talk about other stuff, um, in between, but like it didn't make any sense, like what they, what they, the fights between those two and then what it ended up being at the very end. So then it was like no payoff for the fight that they were like, um, I guess. In, uh, instigating and so also that could have been taken out in my eyes and it could have just been more about the elements and them focusing on the virus which would have been more compelling yeah you know they don't i mean you're exactly right because okay so the actor who plays the rich industrialist who's in charge of this entire arctic expedition is joey seagal joey seagal is a b-movie actor and you know it's funny because he's only playing at one speed in this entire film, he's he's just playing jerk the entire film. And we yeah. know we know he's a bad guy immediately. I wrote this down because one of his lines that he says to the captain in that scene is he says, I get my money's worth if you do the dirty work. Now, I don't I don't care how bad your your bad guy is, but I'm kind of thinking that's something that they could have shown us, you know, showing him being just a total ass rather than because I, I don't know of anyone who would say something like that in. <laughs> in the real world but yeah they just to let you know that he is a, a, an, an egotistical jerk they they give that line interestingly the the actor uh, again joey seagal b-movie actor i'll always remember him uh, he did a movie back in 1989 called uh the return of swamp thing 
And that was one of my favorite films when I was uh, quite younger. But he was in that. But interesting, a b- interesting thing about Joey Seagal is he is actually the brother to Katie Seagal from Married with Children and Sons of Anarchy. That's interesting um, because she's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I don't fault him because it's also probably they had to get these lines in and they probably were just like, play it up and just do this and very one note. And it's not like he could have like a nuanced character, bad guy, you know, so or the luxury of doing that. So I was like, OK, we're playing like very cliche bad guy stereotypes. OK, I'm here for it. Let's just keep going and see how it plays out. That's why I think. It upset me that they didn't, um, and I, I'll wait to talk about it, but the way it ends with, between those two and his character, I didn't like because it was like, if you're going to play that up in the beginning, I wanted to fully uh, flesh out and just go all the way towards the end, and it didn't. So I think that's why I was bummed about it, because if you're going to play it up, you got to follow through. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's how I felt about that whole storyline. Well, why is this... Why is this okay? So the the ship is called the Nathaniel Palmer, but why is this ship out there, and why is this industrialist out there as well? I mean, are they looking for the meteors as well? I mean, they they kind of don't touch upon that and lean a lean into that any as to why this is even happening either. Did you pick up on that? No, I mean he mentions it throughout, like the industrialist. I don't know what his uh his character name is, um, but he just uh, yeah, and I guess this leads into something else, which is. There's an astrobiologist, which I didn't Google, so I don't know if that's true uh, or if that's, like, an actual thing. But they, like, go back and forth. Like, there's a team. He has a team, but you never really know what the team's roles are either. <laughs> and I'm I'm trying to figure out. And also, it was weird because there's one with a mask. There's one that has an accent. And so I got confused between some of them as well because I'm like, was this the one that was this and whatever? And because they're kind of intercha- interchangeable, unfortunately. It just was never figured. Because then he, they see the meteor falling, so they couldn't have been there for the meteor or his spaceship, you know? So it's like after the fact that they go out and they see this thing fall, they're like, let's just go explore it and see if that will be valuable. And then that's, how, and then that's when they're like, oh, let's bring this back. Unless there was a meteor before that that they went, and then the spaceship came down too. So it wasn't very clear what was exactly valuable, we just know that this guy was yelling at the captain, like, you got to go out there because I need some stuff that's out there. And we're like, I don't know what that stuff is, but okay. Well, and another one of the members of this uh, of this expedition crew of the Nathaniel Palmer, which is such an interesting name for the ship. I have to wonder, I didn't ask uh, Chris <laughs> Kulikowski this, but I got to wonder if, if there's some significance between, because I mean, you see and hear that name multiple times in the film. So I got to wonder if there's, some significance to it. But anyway, one of the crew members is played by Gary Daniels, who, I mean, look, Gary Daniels is a veteran of the action genre, especially those the B movies. Uh, he's an amazing martial artist. So it was really, really cool to see Dolph Lundgren and Gary Daniels in a film together. But sadly, I mean, talk about a missed opportunity here. They're not adversaries and they really don't even team up my understanding is that uh, Gary Daniels was initially up, up for the role of Dalton, the uh, the lead bad guy, but some issues arose, and instead he was cast in this small secondary role. Uh, there's a rumor on IMDb, I don't know how much uh, truth there is to this or not, um, but it suggests that uh, this was at the request of Lundgren. Um, Lundgren didn't want him to be the uh, the lead bad guy, so that's why he was 
put in this small role, but that doesn't really sound accurate either. But I don't know. It just, it, it seems like a huge missed opportunity. You're going to cast this amazing English martial artist like Gary Daniels, and you're going to put him in this nothing role, which <laughs> you could take that role out of the film completely. And the film is still going to play and still going to be fine. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I feel that way about a few of those characters, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I guess, um, one thing that I wanted to, uh, I guess bring up is the action sequence is not the best. So I appreciate the John Wick franchise even more now than I do. <laughs> um, but now that you mentioned that too, with Gary, like that, that definitely was a missed opportunity because like he's, he, when he has to fight the bad, his own team, it's not, it's, it's not very good. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. There, some of these characters, like, I feel like there could have been a lot, uh, at least three fewer and it would have been way better too. Cause there was just too many didn't understand what they were doing. I don't even think they understood what they were doing. And it was just a little congested. And I think because it was just, there's was these weird subplots too, like, the one of the guys was um comes into the room with the astrobiologist which is the only female and she like the music starts getting really cheesy which i wanted to talk about the music too because it's just all over the place yeah and um i'm very odd like very odd but like that like they insinuate like he puts his hand over her her i mean he puts like a hand on his on her shoulder and then like that's like romantic and she's like no and it's like really just odd and and so that was kind of like a subplot because they they come back to it at the very end and i'm just like what is going on like focus on i think it's just and i guess what we're getting to is like maybe a little bit more focus on the characters like what they wanted to focus on would have been would have helped a lot especially given their low budget and everything and it would have helped the movie i think a lot as well to be a little bit more focused and 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 not try to put these cliche stereotypes, which I don't know if that came from the studio or, you know, maybe it came from other people trying to tell him, like, you got to have more of this and, and whatever. So I don't know how much of that was that or or maybe the director. That's what he wanted. I don't know. <laughs> well, the female lead in the film, I mean, you kind of talked about her already. Um, her character's name is Renee Diaz um, and she's played by actress Sylvia DeSantis. And and yeah, like. Like I said, there, there's so much going on in this film, but she gets a little bit of a backstory. We find out that she has a young daughter back home, and that's pretty much it that, <laughs> that, that we get. Is she just has this? Yeah, then girl. It, and then it gets yeah, then it gets weird after that. Yeah, and then that's pretty <laughs> much it. But we see Lundgren again. This is another thing that I noticed. I don't know if you noticed it either, but <laughs> another way in which the production is cut in corners. So. Lundgren crash lands in the Arctic, another sign of the budget or lack thereof. We never see the time travel spaceship crash land. It's just when we see him again, he is traipsing through this icy terrain as he's being tracked down by the bad members of his former team. I, I kind of had to laugh at that as well. You would think maybe you'd see the ship at least land or at least them maybe getting off the ship. I don't know. Um, but. When we see Lundgren again, he's running through the uh, running through the snow, and the two bad dudes, Dalton and uh, the other guy, are chasing him. Yeah, that's funny because that happens later in the film too with the helicopter, and it just gets blown up. But there's like no pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was one of those things. They're like they they won't notice, but it's like yeah, we noticed. Yeah. <laughs> or they didn't care that we noticed. <laughs> 
Well, and, that, and that's the other. But you gotta love that, you know. Like it's it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. There's a certain amount of. I think there's a certain amount of charm to it. And I think that's one of the things that's charming about it is, yeah, you're going to see that helicopter blow up. It's a big explosion <laughs> that that looks, I mean, by now, by today's standards, I think that could be done just as well on like a Mac or something like that, if you will. <laughs> but yeah, the other thing that I thought was kind of funny as well, this is the other issue, is did you notice we are never shown, not once, well, I take that back. We see it at the very, very end, but that's it. But for the most part, we're never shown an exterior shot of the ship as it's landed in the snow. I mean, the film is very strategic in how it does this, but it jumps from various characters, both the expedition crew, so the, the crew who is on the, the Arctic ship, and then uh, Lundgren's team of, of future soldiers or whatever. But it just jumps from these characters wandering around the inside of the spaceship back to the inside of the of the Nathaniel Palmer. I mean, we never really see a heck of a lot of exterior shots kind of establishing where these characters are at. And so that is a little bit of a problem too, because one minute you'll see it's supposed to be the inside of this, uh, the Nathaniel Palmer, like I said, the, the expedition ship, and then it'll switch to Lundgren running around or the bad dudes kind of giving their orders, trying to figure out where to find Lundgren. And they're in the time ship, the, the time travel spaceship or whatever as well. It gets a little confusing, but that's obviously the budget kind of dictating that. Yeah, it, it did get confusing as well as when they were trying to do the, when the crew from the ship, from the Nathaniel Palmer is out looking for them and they're on the snowblower or what is it called? They were like on a snow jet ski or something. Yeah, yeah. Or plow. I don't know what do you call it. Um, and then they find, uh, they find, uh, foster just like thrown and then and then it's funny because if you know if you think about it like they focus so much because he before we don't we didn't see the spaceship land right and so then he was running he runs into the bad guys um and then he like beats them up there's two of them and then the the crew finds lundgren takes them back you know and then that's a whole other thing but then when they go back to the bad guy who he beat up he like they show this extensive scene and like flashbacks of <laughs> Of him, like, him getting knocked out and then rolling and then, like, hitting the rock. That's why his head hurts. You know, like, it was, like, a weird flashback to, like, a thing that probably could have been taken out. So yeah. it, that was a little bit confusing as well. Like, why are you focusing on that? And then, like you mentioned, it was a little bit jarring to not have those exterior shots, which is, I guess, why um, it makes sense when you have them. You know, when we see big budget movies, it's like, you just take it for granted, I guess. But it does help you establish like where you are so yeah now that i didn't even realize that i hadn't seen the exterior of the ship but then it did make sense because i was confused like when he was just running and like what happened to the ship and yeah that that was that was definitely um something that that could have helped them and make this just a little bit better i mean make it yeah make it overall a little bit better we we definitely needed those because it was confusing, but I just laughed at when they showed us that whole bad guy rolling down, like in a flashback. It didn't have to be a flashback. It could have been, you know what I mean? I don't know if you, if you laughed at that as well, but oh, I yeah. thought it was so funny. Like, well, what I did have to laugh at, I mean, there, they do, there is one establishing exterior shot that I do have to laugh at. It's about 20, 25 minutes in the film. It's where the, um, the crew of the Nathaniel Palmer gets off the ship and it's before they find, um, Lundgren's character in the snow unconscious 
but it's them walking alongside the Palmer. And it's this really odd green screen effect where you just see a static shot. I don't know if you took note of this or even noticed it all, but it's just a very odd like photograph in a weird way. And they're, it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember in Wayne's world, remember the scene in Wayne's world where they're talking about, Hey, this is called uh this is a new technique where, um you know, I'm in New York now and I'm in new, I'm in Rhode Island or whatever. I don't know if you remember that scene or not, but that's what it looked like. They were like, they were just walking in front of like a, uh, a screen behind them that had this backdrop. So I, I kind of grinned at that part. Yeah. And when they do this, uh, when they do the, the faraway shot of the ship too, it was very like fuzzy and blurry. I think that was also photo or whatever, like a rendering. That was funny <laughs> of, of it. But I actually thought um, it was actually pretty for what it was when they show us the ship in the snow or like in the ice. I was like, Oh, that's decent. I'll take it. Yeah. And I'm convinced that had, that had to be like um, stock footage from the public domain or something like that to do it. But you know what? It does blend in pretty seamlessly with the film. Yeah. Um, speaking of stock footage, I felt like the music was just stock music. Like it was so oddly placed, like very weak, like not even matching the the tone of the scenes it needed to be. Like, it was just so weird. I was like, I had, it was a little bit jarring for me. Cause I was like, Oh my God. Like, you know, you could have been a little, like you could have been better in your music choices, but maybe it was the selection. I don't know. But like when I was talking about that romantic scene that they were trying to do, I guess, romantic with the, one of the crew members and uh, Renee, and then it, it, it becomes like very twinkly and the music is obviously trying to tell you, Hey, this is a, like a romantic scene. I'm like, you don't need to do that. I know. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Well, according to IMDb, the film was actually under the gun and was mixed and just mixed and edited in just, I think, like two, two and a half days. So, yeah, I kind of I kind of think that, uh, yeah, they went to the public domain and thought, OK, we need to just get this edited. What kind of what kind of music is available that we can use? But yeah, the music does not it, it, it doesn't even seem fitting for like a for like a TV movie. I mean, it's it's very jarring and and loud and it really overpowers the dialogue in a lot of ways. Yeah. I felt like they could have left it out and I would have been okay with it. Yeah. Because it doesn't evoke, I think it, it completely ruins the tone of what they're trying to do, especially for a science fiction film. It became a little, like, I think I forgot where, um, where it was towards the end, but they did that similar music, um, that they did with in the romantic scene, like twinkly, and I was just like, this should not be here. Like, it's ruining the scene. It's It was like an, an action or I don't know what, but it was like, no, like, what are you doing? Like, just leave it out. Less is more, <laughs> especially like, especially with that. Like, obviously, if you're not going to have a score, maybe just stick to the sound effects and like maybe a little bit of something. But those that um that music was not working for me at all. Like, I wish they would have left it out. Well, the the hasty post-production on this film is really evident in a lot of places. I mean, there is there were some parts, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but I thought that the sound mixing needed to be perfected just a little bit more. I mean, there's quite a few scenes where you can hear the characters' voices echoing on the sets where the movie was being filmed. And there's also... <laughs> This I kind of had to laugh at. There's also quite a few scenes where you can hear the sound of the leather motorcycle suits as the characters are moving around. You can kind of hear the creaking of the leather and it almost overpowers a lot of the dialogue there as well. Yeah, I I think I heard that and it was it was weird. <laughs> and yeah. also, um, I know they use and this is 
true for big budget films too, but it just was more evident in this film is uh, the cheesy um, like punches. Yeah. You know, like, and I felt like it was a little bit not timed very well. So it just made it even more cheesy and like, like oof, like, yeah, you guys needed a little bit, a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more uh, sound mixing or, you know, <laughs> something because that was, that was, uh, I always find it hilarious because when I go back and watch old action movies, like they use the stock like punch sounds and that's fine. But then you can, you can, and you, you forgive it just because the movie is good and everything else is good. But then when you see it like in a 2004 film, you're like, oh, you're still doing, you know, it's very clear because they don't try to blend, like it wasn't blended to make it at least a little bit realistic. So that was very evident, like very, very at the forefront where you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Going for the stock, stock sounds too. Well, one of the meteor pieces found outside uh, makes its way on the ship and begins slowly infecting the crew. We, we find out that the plague, it spreads through, what is it, touch, perspiration, and body fluids. I think that's one of, one of, the, characters, uh, one of the characters says. And this doesn't affect Lundgren, however, due to his enhanced genetic makeup that makes him immune. Now, <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is something that there was a similar issue to a previous film and episode that we covered agent red agent red is, is I, I still would put that at the, at the bottom of Lundgren's entire filmography. But I feel like, and when you make your character immune, then what you're doing is you're taking away stakes. And if you're going to take away some stakes to the film or to even one of the characters, this is going to affect the conflict. And I don't, understand there's got to be something missing there but i don't understand why they're going to make lundgren's character just have this enhanced makeup that makes him immune and then they don't do a heck of a lot with that i mean we see various shots at the beginning as they're getting ready to go on this mission they're injecting themselves with a certain antidote to make themselves even more immune i don't know that 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 was one thing that i I was kind of like why why are we taking that away i mean are we adding that just so we can get to the finish line a little bit quicker in this film so we can hit that 90 minute runtime or what's going on yeah and if you think about it if they're immune then why would they even want to go save the plague right you know like <laughs> like like i know he they kind of i don't know when they flash back um but they show i don't know if it, this was at the beginning but they show which you assume um is his wife and kid that they got the plague and so maybe that's why that's his stakes is that he wants to go back and erase this so they can stay alive or whatever. But like, yeah, why it, that doesn't, it doesn't add anything because they didn't really use that to their event. They didn't use it again. Like they never used it. It's just like, Oh, he's not going to get infected. So maybe he doesn't have to have any special effects on him. Maybe, maybe that's what they're going for. Like minimize uh, that aspect of it. Um, but well, also I was going to ask you whether when he gets, when they finally get him on the ship, no one is like, no one is even creeped out. Like, why is he wearing a motorcycle? Like, you know, I mean, why is he like wearing this thing? He's not like in a sweater or anything. Like, why would he be in the Arctic? Like, no one seems to be really, they're just, the doctor treats him and is like, oh, just stay with him or, yeah. you know, and then when he wakes up, he never even says like, hey guys, by the way, like there's a plague and I'm from the future, you know, like yeah. he doesn't even say anything and they just like allow him to be on the ship. And I'm like, is no one even curious to like what, because the the ship captain and um the industrialist are there when like when the doctor's there treating him and he's asleep but then they're like we can't do anything until we find out who he is but they 
there's no real sense of urgency with that. And then the girl, and then Renee, when she, when he wakes up, they interact and she's not even scared about it either. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is like a rando person who is wearing like a weird suit, not fit for the Arctic. What do you guys, you know, like that, that also bothered me because I was like, no one is talking about like the elephant in the room. And then when, and then when Foster wakes up, he doesn't mention it at all. Like, he's just like, I need this stuff. Where's my backpack? And I'm like, are you not going to tell them about it? Like, I don't, well, I guess because he has to blow up the ship, right? Because they're the, they're the cause of it. But still, like, it would, he never tries to tell anybody what's going on is my thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, that was actually one of my exact notes. That, yeah, no, that was one of my notes as well. Is I thought it was interesting how he never once explains to the Nathaniel Palmer crew who he is or why these bad guys are chasing them. I mean, it's the Dalton character who pretty much tells the, uh, the Renee character near the end that, oh, we're from the future and you're the source of uh, all this plague. But, I mean, that happens – at the very, very end. But yeah, not once does he explain that, uh, yeah, he's a soldier from the future who has this, um, genetic immunity or any of that. And so where you had an issue with that, that's something else that I was just thinking as well is wouldn't that have added some stakes and wouldn't that have been really cool is again, if they took out the bad guys altogether and they had Lundgren, he finds himself get infected with this virus. And so here he is trying to go through the film trying to stop this virus but then we see him slowly becoming infected and him losing steam and he's trying to you know he's trying to cope and save the day while he is also you know i mean it could have been kind of like a uh like a back to the future type thing where remember at the end where marty mcfly is slowly disappearing at the end because he's finding out that his future is uh, is becoming limited right yeah that's i think that's why it just felt very muddled and I feel like we're finding a better film within that. And <laughs> I understand that, you know, the constraints and everything and it was out of their control in some ways, but I felt like if they would have just focused a little bit more, um, like that's, a, that's a movie I want to see the one that you mentioned where he's infected. Now he has some reason, um, in addition to his wife and kid, which he would want to save. Um, but I have the whole issue too, because in this film, they don't have enough time to establish like why they have the technology to also be able to time travel um, or unless I missed that part. So that's also like, we don't know the rules of time travel in this film. So then that's something where even if he tries, even if he saves, um, like if he stops the virus in this film, what is that to say that like, he's going to have the same wife and kid, you know, in the future? Like, cause we don't know those rules either if you kind of get into it. And so I'm like, uh, that seems a little fetch far fetched as well but I'll let it go. But then there's all these other issues. So I didn't, yeah, that's something that could have been, I think they, maybe they thought by adding all these elements of like bad guy, like the obvious things, maybe they thought that would be exciting. But I think by pulling back those things, I think they could have made something really cool where it's just more fleshed out and like simple, but, but like a nice, nice ambitious little sci-fi film that could have worked. I feel like better with what they had. Well, much of the conceit is very similar to John Carpenter's The Thing. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. And according to Kulikowski, he initially did write it as a sequel to The Thing. But then uh, when the producers came on board and they were looking for a project to team Dolph Lundgren with Gary Daniels, uh, Kulikowski pulled out this particular script and kind of 
retrofitted it to 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 work with uh, with to work with Dolph and everything like that. But you know, as I was watching this again, you can certainly see many of those story threads still intact. Because if they did want to make this a sequel to the thing. I could see them working with that a bit. Obviously, a lot of the, the futuristic elements would be taken out, but I, I, I don't know about you, but I saw a lot of those parallels. So I, I gotta be, I gotta believe that when he changed the script, he did leave in quite a few elements that were, that were still part of that thing part two sequel. Yeah. I mean, it definitely feels like this movie was going in a bunch of different directions. So. And they couldn't decide on what it exactly wanted it to be. And then they had to um, just do with it the best they could with it. And so it does feel um, a little bit pull, pulled in different directions, like the writing of what, like, cause you see the threads of different storylines that didn't get to be fully fleshed out or should have been taken out. And so that's kind of a, that's a bummer in some ways. Cause there's a lot of things like we mentioned in the beginning that it could have been really good in terms of like what they wanted to do, but just like there's a bunch of little threads that should have been taken out and, or should have gone down a little bit um, more in depth. I feel like. Well, I, I am convinced that uh, Oakley and Smith goggles contributed to the budget of this film because uh, those are widely on display <laughs> and in the film, particularly on the bad guys. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. Yes. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot. And then, Oh, like, um, but in the future, the Catherine, the in the future, the you know, they wear Oakley. Oh. So, <laughs> hey, I mean, I guess they survived the virus. <laughs> <laughs> the factory's still going. So what proceeds oh. is pretty much Foster teaming up with the crew of the, of the Nathaniel Palmer as Dalton and members of Foster's future team are hunting him down. Again, it's never really made clear why Dalton and his men have become evil. They, they want control of the ship. They want to control the future. And I guess now they, they're hunting him down because he has the backpack that has the vaccines. And so they want those vaccines. So it's Foster getting his backpack back. And not only does the backpack contain the vaccines, but also contains all the necessary explosives to detonate the Nathaniel Palmer. Again, not only does Lundgren not inform the crew that he is from the future, I guess it was probably a pretty wise move that he doesn't inform them either. Yeah, I'm going to be blowing you guys all up as well. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that sense, I think that's why it makes sense. But why wouldn't he tell the girl? I mean, Renee, you know, like, I don't know. It just didn't make like and also the ship and the, and, and the industrialist doesn't seem like they're even bothered by having this person on there. They seem to be, but their actions don't say that. Which is just so funny. It's like this rando person they found. And yeah, I already spoke my piece about it, but it's just funny. Well, and in the final climax of the film, we get tons of uh, tons of fights and everything. I mean, we kind of already mentioned it, but the the lead industrialist businessman who is in charge of the expedition boards a helicopter, tries to escape, but Dalton shoots at it, causing it to explode. And, you know, there are moments like this, times like this in the film where it doesn't even feel like it's on the level of a sci-fi original movie. Like it feels like it's below even that particular level. But for me, that that added a bit of a charm to it, to where I was laughing at and thinking, okay, well, they're trying. You know what I mean? They're, they're doing what they can do. Yeah. I mean, the only sci-fi element is him coming from a ship and going and then landing on the Arctic and get, and then he's, and then basically that's where it stops and, and the virus thing or whatever. But um, it felt very 
action movie um, without the sci-fi element. Like, it's like that was just kind of like thrown in there and then wasn't really touched upon besides like the beginning and end. And in between is kind of a wannabe, let's blow shit up kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> when we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, because then also they're, I don't know if they were like uh, in the cargo area of when they are like fighting, but then they, they have to do the, they're, they have these guns and stuff and, you know, trying to be very actiony and, and have a gunfight and all that stuff. But yeah, it felt like, it just felt like different movies in different scenes is what it, overall it felt like they couldn't decide what they wanted to be, I think because of the lack of resources. Yeah. Well, and Foster and Dalton, they do get a final battle in the snow, but man, is that battle way too short. I mean, <laughs> I, I almost kind of wonder if uh, franchise pictures, if they were pulling the plug and saying, okay, you guys need to be finished filming by tonight at six o'clock, please, because we're wrapping it up. Because it's, I, I think Dolph throws maybe three punches in that entire fight scene for, for, of course, he wins the the fight at the end, but that was a bit of a disappointment to me as well. Yes, there was a lot to be desired in all the fight scenes, I felt like, <laughs> and it made me just appreciate when it's done well. Because I was like, it it obviously is hard to do, um, and it takes talent. You know, like, I was just, I felt, and it, it made Dal- uh, it made Lundgren look very slow, and I don't know, it just was not flattering in terms of, like, an action hero kind of thing like it was just very bad and i felt i and that's where it made me cringe because i was like no like you can do better you should you should they should have done better by him i think what do you think of the final explosion at the very very end the so lundgren is able to make it back to his ship and he does blow everything up and we get a an awesome shot of again get some stock footage I'm, i'm assuming this was some kind of stock footage or maybe it was they mixed this with some CGI or whatever um, in the post-production phase. But yeah, it's a huge, the equivalent of like an atom bomb, just pretty much wiping everything out in the Antarctic, thus blowing up all traces of the meteor and which in turn would be the, the plague. So all seems to be right. But yeah, that's, that's quite a sight to see, to see that explosion, huh? Yeah, I think that was, that was pretty good. I mean, that was decent. Maybe that's where they spent their money <laughs> on that, on that scene. Oh, I did want to mention, cause I thought like some of the goofs were, that were funny. Um, did you notice people smoking in the weirdest places? Like the doctor was smoking and then the guy was smoking in the lab. And I was just like, wh- like, wouldn't that be damaging? Like, the samples or whatever oh yeah i i actually i thought that as well as yeah it's interesting to me how this um how these scientists are in the lab and they're never really handling any of these instruments or any of these materials wearing gloves or anything like so much for sanitary conditions apparently on (laughs) when they're in the lab but yeah i thought that was interesting too how the the doctor is smoking and um yeah yeah this I, I don't know what more to say about that. So yeah, it's just it really like those little details definitely add up, and you don't realize it until you watch it in something like this where they don't pay attention to those details. So it's just it's very interesting <laughs> the choices that where you have to skimp on and the ones you choose to fo- that which they choose to focus on. But man, does this one end on a happy note? Um, so in the final scenes, we see Renee um in a Spanish coffee shop. Some were to assume presumably that this is in the past. And so she's in this coffee shop with her daughter and Dolph's foster character uh, shows up 
And he urges Renee to spend her time with her daughter and not board the Nathaniel Palmer. And so she decides, okay, she listens to him and she doesn't board the ship. And so the, you know, <laughs> the dickhead industrialist, he gets a little pissed off about that. And then the final shot of the film with the virus being eradicated, uh, we see Dolph and his wife and son living happily and looking out at a bizarre sunset set amongst a green screen yes, that was of some kind. Yes. <laughs> so uh, what did you think bad. about these, these final shots? <laughs> I guess it's just a little bit more about, Oh, so I didn't mean, we didn't talk about it, but the Renee's character bugged me a little bit because I guess she was just thrown in there to first, she was going to have this romantic subplot, which we kind of see in the end as well. When she sees the crew member, that they that had come over and tapped her on the shoulder to have this romantic moment um, earlier in the film. And so she looks at him and smiles. And so, like, that was weird. It's like, okay, but, like, nothing ever happened. And like, Yeah, what's the point rushed. of that if she's not boarding the ship? Yeah, and then also I felt sometimes this happens, like, actually with the female, with it only being the one female character, that there always has to be some romantic connotation to it. Um, and so... Like, even Dolph, like, I mean, even Lundgren, like, you know, he has a, a wife and kid, but, like, the tension that was happening in with them felt weird. Like, when the ship, in the beginning, when he's, when she, when he wakes up in the hospital or, or in the room, and then the ship tilts, and then they, like, she lands in his arms, and then they're, like, having a moment. It's like, what? Like, this is so stupid. Like, why do you have to do that? And then, uh... I don't know. It always, and then at the very at the end too, when he's like "go" or whatever, when they're fighting the the guy who got infected, one of the crew members, and then like he kind of whispers like "I need your help" or whatever, and then he like mouths like, "She's like, why do I have to do?" Or he was just like, "Why?" Or like I don't know. It just felt really like I don't know what they're the vibe they were trying to get. Like, are they supposed to be romantically involved? And like to me, I didn't under it wasn't enough to establish why he should care about this character. Um, is it just because she was female and like he felt bad for her or something or he knew that she had a child and he had a child like there was not enough for me to for him to go back and go out of his way six months earlier to save her if that makes sense like it that part didn't make it didn't um didn't make sense to me and that's why it kind of feels like a cheap payoff when he like goes back and saves her and it's like why did he save her and not the other people right <laughs> To be honest, he has the same he has the same amount of uh like <laughs> the same amount of relationship between everybody. So that just felt like cheap to me. Like the whole romantic but not romantic thing between female and male characters. And I was like, thank goodness we're like getting away from that now in twenty nineteen. This is two thousand four, so I understand why they put that in there. But I didn't like that. I thought that was just kind of a cheap ploy, in my opinion. I'm happy it ended on him, you know, reuniting with his family, but it just felt really weird that he like goes and saves this other character and then comes back. And I don't know. I went off on a tangent, but that's how I felt about that whole thing. Cause I just get really tired of the whole, that kind of trope, you know, with the romantic, but not romantic. And it didn't make sense in this context. Well, an interesting thing about the film that uh, you mentioned, I mean, yeah. So I don't know if you knew this or not, but 2004, this was made and shot and finished production in 2004. But when the company Franchise Pictures went under, this film just sat and it did not get an official DVD release. It was released elsewhere in uh, various other countries. But in terms of North America, it was not released on DVD until 2008. 
So I just found that always so amazing. And so, and here Dolph, he was doing other films. So he was moving forward with his career. So he had all these other films that were, he was filming and um, <laughs> that were getting released before this one. And so, yeah, it, it was just really bizarre to finally, I remember walking through Blockbuster and seeing it finally on the shelves. And I was thinking, man, that took a long time. And so when it came out in 2008, even by 2008, it felt a little dated. And again, that was no fault of, uh, of the production or of the, of the director and everything. My understanding is it kind of, kind of fell into a bit of a legal encumbrance in some kind of ways. And so that's one of the reasons why it sat, but it just was unfortunately just unceremoniously dumped, uh, on DVD by First Look Pictures in the spring of 2008, a full five years after it had been shot. I thought that was that was wild. Yeah, that's really interesting. But honestly, I think I I mean this is the first year I've watched it, 2019. I don't know if it would have been better in 2008. Yeah. <laughs> like, but <laughs> but yeah, um, I think I would have still had the same same points that we brought up. To be honest, in 2008. Well, Catherine, the uh, the moment has come. Looking at Retrograde, does it get a recommend from you, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general? What do you have to say? If I have to say in general, <laughs> I would probably say no. Okay. <laughs> but as Dolph, because, I mean, and I was talking to you about this earlier um, before we started recording, but I hadn't seen a B movie in a while and not because I'm like a snob or anything. It's just. There's so much content to consume in terms of TV and film and in streaming and everything that I don't know, given that context, I don't know if I would tell someone to spend two hours on this when there's so much other stuff to watch. You know, like if they're one of those when if there are people who are busy and, and don't watch movies often um, like I do that, I watch a lot of stuff every day. So for me, it was fine and I loved it. But in that context, I guess I would say no, if you have other things on your watch list. But as Adolf Lundgren, as an action sci-fi um, enthusiast, I would say yes, because it's just a fun, it's fun seeing how people try to, um, especially on a low budget and this being so ambitious, it was really fun to see what they tried to do with the production design, um, with the, with the, with the costuming. Yeah. So. I would definitely recommend it if you're if you're open to that kind of thing and you like those genres. But if you're on a time crunch and you don't have, you know, you can only watch certain things, I would not watch that. I would not watch this. Check out Event Horizon instead, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, for me, with regard to my recommend, um, you know, I honestly think that there is much to appreciate about this one. Like I said earlier, it's the first time that Lundgren starred in a real full-on science fiction film. So seeing him manning a time travel spaceship is really fun. I think he looks great in the film, uh, especially in that cool motorcycle suit. Uh, unfortunately, the tight budget and the short shooting schedule really doesn't do the film many favors. And it's clearly evident where everyone was forced to cut corners. The film, unfortunately, just has an overall cheap look and feel to it. And because it's a sci-fi flick, these cut corners come off as more laughable than anything else. But I will say, but you can tell that everyone is trying with this film. I honestly think, you know, you talked about the the acting at the beginning of the film between the, the captain and the industrialist. And I will say, in my opinion, I don't think that anyone is sleepwalking through their role. 
And I think there's a certain amount of charm and exquisiteness seeing everyone playing this so earnestly. You know, Kulikowski commented that despite the harsh constraints he was faced with, everyone on set came to set ready to play. And so for those reasons, I think it's certainly admirable. You know, it's certainly not one of Dolph's uh, best movies, but I honestly think, you know, you do have to appreciate the originality that's here. There's a lot of cool elements to this that if it had a bigger budget and more resources, I think we could have gotten something really, really cool. So I would say that it gets a recommend as both a doll film and a film in general for these reasons. I think that if you can watch it through the lens of honestly what it takes to get a movie made, then I think Retrograde is an excellent learning experience for any any film fan. You said it best. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, Catherine, um, I had a ton of fun. So uh, thank you for not only agreeing to uh, come on the show, but for helping me uh, uh, tackle this particular uh, this particular slice of B sci-fi action, whichever category you want to put it in. Uh, before I let you go, um, you talked about uh, your podcast, uh, Shuffle the Podcast. Is there anything else that you're working on? I didn't want to ask you at the beginning of the episode, but I do know, I don't know if you're how much you're at liberty to talk about it, but... Didn't you mention that you are looking at starting a second podcast dedicated to like 80s and 90s action movies? Yes. Um, it will be part of Shuffle the Podcast because um, since we shuffle a little bit of everything, so it ties in. But I want to do a whole series on 80s, 90s, early 2000s action films just because especially doing this podcast and learning about one action you know, action star like Lundgren who has all these B movies. There's so much to be explored. And I feel like action movies are always just thrown into this one category and kind of written off as one thing. And I, I don't think, um, I really want to highlight, I guess the uniqueness and just everything that I love about action movies. Um, but I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to flesh it out because I want to do justice by, um, that genre that I love so much. So yeah, but hopefully soon we'll, um, that will be, um, coming, coming soon to shuffle the podcast. Well, if you need any help with that, or if you need a, uh, a second voice or a, a third mic or anything like that, I'd be happy to, uh, help out in any capacity. So please let me know. Yes, definitely. I need expertise, especially <laughs> from people who have been guests on your podcast. I've seen so good. I hope I was able to give, uh, Lundgren some, uh, justice. Yeah, most definitely. No, this was a ton of fun. Well, yeah. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. I will be, uh, we will be in touch and, uh, I do appreciate it to everyone out there who is listening. Please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. <laughs>